From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun-sized version of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything, and all of you inquisitive inquisitors, ask through Joe Russo. Joe, what have our listeners got for us this week? All sorts of goodies, Mick. Uh, all sorts of goodies. Uh, I expect I... nothing less. We're going to run out one of these days. Yeah, we haven't yet. We've been doing this for a couple of years, so... Uh, we, we do get some new good questions, uh, though I am getting pickier. I'm getting very picky. Uh, <laughs> Keep that so, in mind, everybody, so, when you're writing in. Yeah, Joe right. has, has been fielding the harvest. Yeah, That's right. I'll just say this. I'm, I'm not going to ask Mick which Stephen King adaptations he still wants to do. <laughs> Hard line rule. That is not going yeah. to be a question we're answering on the show. Okay. Yeah, uh, okay. C. Taylor writes. Probably a weird question, but does Mick have any tattoos? And if not, would he still consider getting one? Uh, that is a weird question, but it is ask <laughs> Mick anything. And uh, I have no tattoos and I have no interest in getting any tattoos. Well, there you go. Uh, That's an easy ironically, first one. <laughs> yes, it is. But ironically, in the same batch of questions, completely unrelated, AJ Gribble asks, if you ever got a tattoo, what would it be? <laughs> well, that question is moot because I have no interest whatsoever in defacing my flesh. Ah, there you go. There you go. Uh, Mike asks, what's the most memorable double feature you ever experienced in a movie theater? You know, it would probably have to be, I saw a rabbit in, mm. at a theater in the Valley. And then I saw it was playing at another theater with They Came From Within, uh, otherwise known as Shivers. And so I loved Rabbit so much that the next night I dragged a couple of friends to this little multiplex box theater in the Valley where they played back to back. And it was one of the most amazing, wonderful, double feature experiences I'd ever had. So I would have to 
put that forward as as the best double feature experience I can remember. And that is a very good Cronenbergian answer. <laughs> yes. uh, probably coming in at number two was uh, during the 70s, there was a revival of um, 3D. And Ooh. they did, it came from outer space and Creature from the Black Lagoon as a double feature wearing the blue and red uh, lenses, cardboard eyeglasses. And that was pretty special too, because I'd only seen them on television before then. That's that. That's pretty cool too. Uh, those are much better answers. I wish there were more opportunities for double features uh, today. But well, just um, go to Quentin's theaters and. Uh, well, that's what I was going to say. One of the best ones I ever went to was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom back to back. Uh, that was a good one. That was yeah. that was that was a killer double feature. Um, and I had never seen Raiders on the big screen at that point, so it was. Oh my god! Very yeah, you well, kids, you know, I was you, you kids I was, today. I wasn't I wasn't even a glimmer in my parents' eye when that movie was in theaters originally. So. Oh, you kids today. <laughs> oh my god. Exactly. All right. <laughs> Your Canadian girlfriend asks. What? Well, that's the name. Your Canadian that's... girlfriend is their Twitter handle. How big how big does a person's home TV video projector have to be for you to say? That's as good as seeing it in a theater. Well, there is no way any TV is going to be as good as seeing it in a theater. I have an 86-inch uh, LG television with surround sound and the whole thing. And as much as I love that, I would still, you know, this whole HBO Max thing where uh, all of the Warner Brothers releases come out theatrically and on HBO Max on the same day. I still go up to the uh, Universal City AMC and see the movies there, um, even if I can see it on my own set. I was so, excited uh, to do that for a uh, friend of the podcast, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we love James Gunn's work. And uh, so I think it deserves the respect of seeing it on the big screen. I, I think you're probably right. And uh, the reviews are great. So I'm really excited. Oh, good. Uh, I haven't seen any of them yet. And as of oh, yeah, this I think recording, it's got, it's got like a 95% plus on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Wow. Which is, as of this recording, it hasn't, it's going to come out in uh, a few days. It will come out before uh, you hear this. So, yeah. So, there you go. Yeah. So, everybody's already formed their opinions. And, uh, and we're just the jerks uh, speculating. <laughs> So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but you've been you've been a proponent though because you got how big is the TV in your house right now? Eighty six inches. Yeah, I mean you've been you've been like that's 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 a good enough for you. Like you you've been raving about that experience. Oh yeah, it's it, it's not good enough, but it's certainly good for the home uh, experience, and it's nice to have most of your wall taken up with a screen, uh, like the old Ray Bradbury stories from the sixties. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, there you go. 86 inches at least. Uh, Welsh Size matters. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to TVs, yes. Uh, Welsh writes, I'd be curious to know, how did you and Joe Russo partner up? How do we partner up, Mick? Interesting. You can answer this as well as I can, but we met. Sure. Uh, was, was Nightmare Cinema the first thing we met on? Or was yes, it, it was. a general uh, meeting? Yeah, it okay. Was, well, it was kind of a general. Uh, yeah. My a mutual friend named David Harris, who went on to be one of the producers on Nightmare Cinema because of 
facilitating this introduction. Uh, he, you know, asked if I wanted to meet you and having been a fan of many of your works over the years, I gladly said yes. And we had a general when I was a development executive. And yeah, you were an executive about, at Bill, Bill Todman Productions and... Uh, Yep. Yep. It was um, called Level One Entertainment. It was Bill Todman's company. And I'd been there for four years at that point. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you told me you wanted to try to do Nightmare Cinema as a spiritual successor to Masters of Horror. And I said, let's figure out how to do it. it yeah. Took, took a couple of years, but we did it. So. It took a while. And, and during that time, you were at a party when uh, you met somebody who worked for Podcast One and That's you right. talked to them about the possibility of postmortem, what would become postmortem uh, as a podcast. It was nothing I had thought about. And by the time we went to Podcast One and met with them about it, they were pitching Podcast One to us rather than us <laughs> pitching a podcast to them. But we basically took the format of the postmortem TV show that I did for FearNet yep. and turned it into a podcast. And uh, and five years later, here we are. Still, still going strong. Uh, Hopefully. So that's that is the uh, that is the origin. A, a general meeting. So when your reps <laughs> tell you that general meetings are a waste of time, not always. It's uh, our <laughs> origin story. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Greg Green asks Mick and Joe. What is your favorite Vincent Price movie? Hmm. Let's see. Well, there's one called Madhouse that's quite bonkers. Uh, it was mm. a, of his later work uh, in the 70s. Yeah. But the Dr. Fibes movies, and maybe even the second Dr. Fibes movie, uh, he is so relishing his very ripe performance. And it, it, <laughs> it really works for the movie. So both the uh, Dr. Fibes movies uh, probably are way up there. But The Pit and the Pendulum, if you're going for the serious stuff before there was a big camp value to it, um, The Pit and the Pendulum, all of his performances, the good ones are really ripe. And by that, that I mean that in a positive way, not in a negative sense, but quite theatrical. And that's why we remember him so fondly. But I would say uh, those three movies are probably three of my favorites. Well, speaking of theatrical, one of my favorites is called Theater of Blood. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. I should have put that on there too. <laughs> I, uh, when, when I was in college, I wrote movie reviews for a magazine and uh, my uncle was like, oh, you, you know, you, you have to see Theater of Blood because it's basically about critics getting their comeuppance. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> So, so that was that was a very memorable one, and I would have also have to put on the list, uh, if if nothing else, because it inspired our Netflix movie. Uh, I would have to put on the House on Haunted Hill. Um, yeah, so. it's, it was great in its day. It's a little bit uh, pokey if you watch it today. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of see the strings, but yeah. <laughs> uh, his performance is oh yeah incredible. And the setup and the atmosphere are still delicious. So uh, I, I, I owe a great deal to that movie for sure. Yeah. Uh, I, Vincent Price question that popped in my head. Uh, did you have any interactions with him over the years? I know obviously he's the I voice of the thriller, uh, but, yes, but yes, I, I, 
when I was in college at San Diego State University, he came to town. He had put together a pilot of him reading Edgar Allan Poe stories. They weren't acted out, but he was just in this theatrical setting with a skull and a stuffed raven and all these things. <laughs> and with that plummy voice would read the Poe stories on camera. Nobody bought the pilot, but the local San Diego TV station for their afternoon movie ran it. It was, I think, three half-hour stories that he would read of Edgar Allan Poe. So I heard that he was coming, and I went down to Channel 8 KFW, KFMB in San Diego and watched him be interviewed by the local movie host, Bob Dale, and afterwards, he was quite charming and friendly and talked about all the good stuff that we would love to talk to him about. But my grandmother, back in the day, she was a seamstress and a dressmaker in Hollywood uh, back in the 40s and 50s. And she worked with him. She did something for him and knew him through his art collection. He used to buy art for Sears. And he was a very interesting character. He was quite a gourmet chef and was into fine arts and, and literature and all of that. So there's a spidery connection through my grandmother and a more solid connection through actually meeting him at Channel 8 in San Diego. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Well, the Zelig of horror strikes again. Uh, <laughs> all right. Michael asks, uh, is there one aspect of horror that frightens you even when a movie has ended? For me, it was sharks. Looking forward to hearing answers from you both. Um, interesting. You know, the more personal a, a movie gets, the more the horror sticks with me. So it's not so much, it's not ghosts, it's not monsters, it's not dinosaurs, it's not werewolves, it's not stitched together uh, humans. But, you know, something like the Richard uh, Matheson adaptation, Stir of Echoes, that David Kep wrote the screenplay and directed, that's really personal. And it feels like somebody's really going through the ringer. And it is a ghost story, but it keeps going afterwards because the characters and their situations are so real and textured. It's not just a bombardment of slashes and, you know, blood and thunder, but it's something that has an emotional center and that is carried on after the credits roll for me. And Kevin Bacon's performance is so really exceptional in that. That's the sort of thing that sticks with me after. What about you, Joe? Well, you know, I, I was thinking about this too, because I think I think you and I are the same that a lot of the supernatural stuff doesn't necessarily scare us outside of the moment that we're maybe watching it. And I think that's because when you watch a movie in the theater, you're having that cathartic experience. And usually by the end, it's exercise. Uh, like you've, you've experienced it. You've already gone through it. The lights come on and you're safe, right? Uh, but one movie that has always kind of the, the thematic idea uh, that kind of lingered was the movie, the strangers, Brian Bertino. Oh yeah. Uh, and, and the logic behind why it happens to the characters, why these killers show up and, and brutalize them and torture them is just because you were home. Uh, and right. I think, and I there's think no that, more reason than that. No. Yeah. And that, and that's scary because people are scary 
And the fact that there isn't a justification for why it happens and it just happened to them because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. That, that lingers with me. That terrifies me. Yeah. Um, that was very effective. And the fact that they're wearing masks and then when they unmask, it doesn't matter. Nope. Nope. It's uh, it's, it's cold and human nature can be very cold. And I think that's probably what scares me the most. Good one. Uh, our post-mortem engineer, Chris Price, writes, imagine this, your phone rings and it's the head of Legendary Pictures. They're in a bind and willing to greenlight any feature you present them where you will be credited as both writer and director. The budget is 40 million US dollars and it must contain your favorite overused horror trope, zombies. What do you pitch? <laughs> oh man, I don't know if I have a pitch for a zombie movie, even given the $40 million budget. Thanks a lot, Chris. Uh, <laughs> Way to put I, Nick on the spot. <laughs> yeah, put me on the spot. I I do not have a zombie story. Well, I wrote a short story called Forever Grandma that is a rather more than R-rated uh, zombie story was, was this uh, fallen the the motherfucker uh <laughs> canon it, well it would fall in the grandmotherfucker canon <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's in my first book a life in the cinema and it's called forever grandma and it's a young boy in the deep south uh misses his beloved grandmother after she dies and then experiences her rebirth in a very uncomfortable way that no 12 year old boy should ever have to experience. All right. Well, there you go. If you want to know what Mick would do with $40 million, yeah, that would not be my $40 million movie unless the star was 20 million. So. Yeah, there you go. Maybe she would be. Maybe she would there you be. go. So you get Michelle Pfeiffer to play grandma. Forever grandma. And then, then yeah. you go. You're off. Okay. <laughs> All right. Paradopier asks, is there a movie or series you worked on where you wish you could have a redo on a specific special or visual effect? Well, there's a couple of them. And mainly because they were done in the birth of CGI. Mm. <clears throat> the, the stand first, which we shot in 93 and came out in 94, there's a transformation uh, of Randall Flagg that is static and just kind of gnarly and, and you know very cheap looking. And there are a few things like that. Um, and in The Shining, the uh, the lion, uh, the lion topiary lions, uh, they looked good in the day, but they were not done in HD because it was first shown in standard definition, although it was shot in 35 millimeter. <clears throat> when the lions come to life now, when you look at the DVD, even the DVD, those visual effects uh, are quite hampered by their age. So I'm hoping that maybe if and when it goes to Blu-ray, that there will be an upgrade on the, on the visual effects as well. But the actual CG effects were done by an individual on the stand rather than a company. We had a company do one expensive shot in the stand, uh, Cibola, the city of gold that, that uh, Matt Frewer's character sees. Yeah. But um, all of the other stand effects were, you know, the kind of garage effects that people are capable of doing now, but at a much higher level than they were at the time we did them. So it was really timing as well as budget. There you go. 
Joshua asks, is there a favorite project you had that didn't wind up happening? And why didn't it happen? Oh, a lot of them. <clears throat> I mean, there one that stands heads and, you know, uh, shoulders yeah, probably, above the rest. Probably the biggest one that should have happened that never happened was a four hour version of The Talisman. Mm. I had written the screenplay and it was Steven Spielberg producing and uh, Peter Straub and Stephen King uh, being a part of the production team. And the uh, above the line costs, including them and Kathy Kennedy and Frank Marshall uh, were so high, including me, although my above the line cost was by far the lowest of that group of 800 pound gorillas. Sure. Uh, was so high and ABC was in such dire financial states, uh, straits. It was at a time when their ratings had just sunk to rock bottom. They were doing very poorly and everybody was enthusiastic about the script, but they just couldn't afford to do it. And that's something I'll always regret never having had that happen. But if, if you're a screenwriter, there's no way you've had everything you love produced mm -hmm. unless maybe you're Woody Allen or something, but <clears throat> that is. But, but even then, I'm sure there were a couple of scripts that he made before he went on his run of making everything he wrote that, yeah. you know, sat everything he wanted to make. Yeah. yeah and there are a few yeah. people like that, but you know, um, all of, uh, even our favorite filmmakers and screenwriters have, have had things that they consider to be their best work, not hit screens. Well, and I think, I think with Talisman, you bring up an interesting insight that probably most people don't realize is the more development money gets thrown at a script or a project, the harder it becomes to eventually make that thing. Because, oh, I'll give you an even better, yeah. uh, better, uh, example than that. There's a script that Richard Christian Matheson and I wrote together called Red Sleep. And it sold for $750,000. And, you know, we, it was going to go. Then they decided, well, we want to go through development. And they literally had another 12 writers on it. Wow. The, the budget for the writing was so huge. And for a while, John Landis was going to direct it. For a while, there were different directors. They talked about doing it, and there was a green light, and then the green light turned yellow, and then they had John do um, his uh, other vampire movie, and Red Sleep was a vampire movie. Um, so uh, it just didn't happen. And by the time they finished the development process, there was so much money against it that there's no way we could ever get it back and do it somewhere else because there was at least two or $3 million put into the script alone. And that's a lot of money. Absolutely. And, 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 yeah. Yeah, and to be able to go to someone else and say, hey, I want to have you buy this project for me and already have millions of dollars against it and then possibly have to invest even more money into developing it, uh, it, it becomes it becomes a very um, impossible task. And a lot of projects just die on the vine because of it. Um, yeah, so those are two of my rooms in the Heartbreak Hotel. Uh, they're, they're, they're both, I think, very heartbreaking. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who, like you, wished they could have seen them. Uh, speaking of opportunities in writing, uh, Gabriel writes, at one point, Mick referenced almost writing a screenplay for Billy Wilder. Is there a story behind that? Yeah, Billy Wilder 
has always, to me, been one of the greatest and most versatile filmmakers of all time. I mean, he did Some Like It Hot, he did The Last Weekend, he, he, he did, um, you know, so many noir pictures and comedies and, and just incredible versatility and a brilliant screenwriter, mostly with IAL Diamond in, in the last half of his career. And I was asked by the Xanax, Richard and Lily Zanuck, to adapt a book called All the Western Stars by Philip, we Philip Lee Williams. And it's not a genre film. It's about two older guys who are in a, an old folks home, a retirement home, and they decide they want to break out and go west and become cowboys. And the funny thing is they escape from the retirement home and they go west and they end up in Arizona where someone is shooting a Western and they get jobs working on the film. And it's really beautiful. The book was fantastic. And it was one of my favorite things I ever wrote. Another Room in the Heartbreak Hotel. Yeah. And Dick and Lily loved it. And they took it to Billy Wilder in the hopes that maybe he would direct it starring um, Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau to wow. pair them up again. Yeah. And so thrilling for me, you know, they had worked together before quite famously and successfully with Billy. And I never got to meet Wilder, but basically he said the reason it didn't go was he kept waiting for the train to crash. His movies uh, the ones that are most personal to him, like Ace in the Hole, are very, very cynical. And this didn't really go dark. And he was looking for it to go dark, and it didn't. And so that was the reason. It would have been the last movie he ever made. Wow. Because he, he passed away a year or two after that. Incredible. Incredible. Uh there you have it. Not not just one, not just two, but three uh, rooms in the Heartbreak Hotel. But uh, <laughs> uh, what could have been, you know? Uh, yeah. that's, and that's why we do these Ask Mick Anythings, because we learn every time. Thank you, Mick, for another uh, great, great session. And thank uh, you, Joe. And thank you to the audience for their questions. And Joe, please let them know how they can ask more questions for AMA. You can send us your questions to... Mick on Twitter and Instagram at Mick Garris PM or to me at Joe Russo tweets on Twitter and Joe Russo Graham on Instagram. Great. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, Mick. Well, before we wrap it up, I just wanted to say that Abby Bernstein has written a biography about me that is being really well received. And it's very bizarre for me. I mean, my mother has passed away, so I don't know who's going to buy this, but it's called Master of Horror, the official biography of Mick Garris. And I'm humbled and excited to see it coming out on August 13th. Abby and I and a bunch of my friends who were interviewed for the book will be at Dark Delicacies in Burbank signing the book on August 21st. So I hope to see you there. And uh, I hope if you pick it up that you'll enjoy it. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app.